Well, please take up your Bibles once more as we read our Old Testament passage and sermon text for this morning, which can be found in the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. Uh, We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, which can be found on page 816 of the provided Bible. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Well, human beings are nostalgic creatures, right? And by that, I mean we have a tendency to look back on the past with a certain sense of longing and regret that those days are gone and we can't get them back. Sometimes we even long for days that are way back in the past before we were even born. I mean, I've spoken to people who have read an old book or maybe seen an old movie uh, depicting the past, and they would say to me, well, wouldn't it be great to live in colonial times? Or wouldn't it be great to live during the days of King Arthur uh, or in the 19th century? And, of course, I don't say this to their face, but I think this in my brain. I say, well, are you crazy? What do you mean? You want to live back in the days where there was no running water, where there was no electricity, no indoor plumbing, and people died of diseases that we've all but eradicated today? But all this to say that we will probably never cease being nostalgic creatures. And even you young people here today will one day grow up and say, Well, back in my day, this is how such and such happened. Now, if you can relate to this feeling, then you can relate to how the people of Haggai's day were, how how they felt. Now, the last time, as we begin this series through the book of Haggai, last time uh, we said that Haggai is one of the post-exilic prophets, along with Zechariah and Malachi. And by that, these are people who spoke, uh, these are prophets who spoke to God's people after they returned from the exile back to Jerusalem. And here, these prophecies that Haggai uh, uh, speaks, they can be precisely dated, which is what you see in these, these formulas here. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, we can date these precisely to the fall and winter of the year 520 B.C. 
Now, if you remember from last week, we looked at Haggai chapter 1. And in the first chapter, the Lord speaks through Haggai, the prophet, to sort of shake the people out of their sense of complacency and to stir them up to complete the work of the temple. That was why the people were allowed to go back to their homes. That was why the Persians allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem so they can rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But if you remember from last week, we saw that the people sort of got sidetracked. They got, they got hindered in their attempts to build the temple. So they, they put it on the back burner. Well, Haggai comes and says, look, consider your ways. You need to be about building the work of the temple here. He is sent to remind the people that they needed to prioritize God's kingdom. And by doing so, they will receive God's blessing. But now as we get into Haggai chapter 2, you're going to see the people start to reminisce. They're nostalgic, right? They're going to, you're going to see them reminisce about the past and about the former temple and about the glory days in the past. You can almost hear them saying as they come back and they're building this temple, they say, well, back in my day, this temple was really amazing. But as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the idea I want to get across this morning is that the Lord encourages us to look ahead for the glory yet to come. The Lord encourages us to look ahead for the glory yet to come. We'll see this passage break out roughly into three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the people reminiscing on the former glory. They're going to look back and they're going to be thinking about what this temple used to look like. But then in verses 4 and 5, the Lord sends encouragement to be strong and fear not. And then in verses 6 through 9, we'll see expecting the latter glory or the glory yet to come. So as you look at verses 1 through 3, we pick up our story in Haggai 2.1, which occurs about a month after the events from chapter 1. And again, based on the time markers given by Haggai, we can date this oracle to the date essentially being October 17th of the year 520 by current reckoning. Now this date, or more precisely this time frame, 7th month, 21st day, is important for two reasons. The first reason is that the 21st day of the 7th month would place this period of time at the end of the Jewish feast of tabernacle or the feast of booths. And if you recall from the Old Testament and from the Pentateuch, the feast of tabernacles is the last of the major Jewish festivals. This was a feast that they were to observe in the promised land. It was the end of the harvest time. And the people gathered to celebrate the Lord's provision during the harvest and to remember the Lord's deliverance from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. That was what the feast of tabernacles was important for. Now, the second reason why this date is important is because it would also be the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple, which had taken place during this very same time period. It took, it took place during this very same feast. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. So, at a time where there should have been joyful celebration in the land with feasting and worship, celebrating the Lord's goodness and his provision and celebrating the glorious temple that Solomon erected, there was instead, there was no bountiful harvest. In fact, there was a, a very weak harvest. There was a drought in the land. And they had a temple that was lying in ruins. All in all, this is not much reason at all to celebrate. 
Yet even though their temple lies in ruins, even though they're serving Persian overlords, and even though they're facing opposition from politically motivated enemies, the word of the Lord will come by the hand of the prophet Haggai to bring a word of encouragement and a word of exhortation. Look again, please, at verse 3, where the message from the Lord is this. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So the message Haggai speaks to the people is essentially a message of recollection. He's saying, who is left among you, remnant, people who have returned from Persia back to Jerusalem? Who is left among you who remembers the old temple? Now, again, recall, the remnant were the people who had returned to Jerusalem after the 70 years of exile. Now, for many of them, they were probably born in captivity, so they would have no idea what the old temple looked like. But sure enough, there were certainly some people who were alive during that time, who were alive and remember the temple. In fact, they remember the glory days of the temple. You, you, see about, you see this in Ezra chapter 3, the people lamenting how, how this temple does not look anything like the old temple. Now, who here likes the boss? Who here likes Bruce Springsteen? Okay, well, there's, it's like that old classic rock song by Bruce Springsteen, right? Glory Days. And in that song, there's a protagonist singing, and he, and he talks about, he encounters a bunch of his old high school friends at the roadside bar, right? And they're all sitting there. They're all past their prime. You've got the ex-jock. You've got the prom queen. And all they do is sit there. They drink beer and they reminisce about the glory days in the past. That's kind of what's going on here. All these people are remembering is the glory days of the temple. They looked at what was being built and they were saddened. That's why the Lord says, how do you see it now? This work that you're doing, how do you see it now? Is this as nothing in your eyes? Do you see this as nothing? Now, for sure, the new temple did not match the glory, the former glory of Solomon's temple. And it brings some of the people to tears. They, they lament that this temple will not at all be like what we used to have. Now, if you remember what we said last time, what the temple represents. The temple represents the presence of God amongst his people. It is God dwelling in their midst. It was the place where sins were atoned for. Sacrifices were performed in the temple to atone for the sins of the people. And it was also the place where God's glory dwelt. The, the Shekinah glory of God descends upon the temple and, and presides there. So maybe the people had this thought going in their mind. If they had a lesser temple... Maybe they thought they were going to get a lesser presence of God in their midst. Maybe they feared that if they had a lesser temple, that they would mean a weaker God who would, would not or could not atone for sins. Or who would not or could not drive out their Persian overlords from the land. This is a despair that is locked into what we see. It is locked into what we perceive with our senses. Now, of course, we're not guilty of this ourselves, are we? Right? I mean, look at the trends in modern evangelicalism, right? It's worship largely driven by shock and awe. It's largely driven by big productions, smoke and bands and everything. And it's, it's all meant to sort of kind of generate a mountaintop experience week after week after week. 
This is not to knock uh, our evangelical brothers and sisters, but sensationalism plays a large part in their worship. But we in the Reformed are not guilty of this at all, are we? We're, we're not, but do we see our relatively bland and boring worship when compared to megachurch worship services and maybe, maybe feel like we're missing out on some kind of glory? If we don't see, if we don't sense this, maybe we fear the Lord is not working in our church. Yet that's what the Apostle Paul tells uh, people in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, you need to walk by faith, not by sight. You need to walk in what you know to be true, what the promises are. Don't walk in what you see. But it's so often the case, as I like to say, we often walk by sight, right? Not by faith. So now that brings us now to a word of encouragement in verses 4 through 5. Seeing the despair of the people, the Lord now speaks an encouraging word through his prophet Haggai in verse 4, where he says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land. So instead of focusing on what the glory of the temple used to be, instead of focusing on the glory days, the Lord issues the command, be strong, three times. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Be strong. Be courageous. Take heart. It's the same command that the Lord gives to Joshua, not the Joshua here, but Joshua from the book of Joshua, the, the uh, successor to Moses. In Joshua 1.6, when he says, Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Moses is dead. Joshua is probably freaking out about having to lead the Lord's people into the promised land. Yet the Lord comes to him and says, Be strong, Joshua. I am with you. Be strong. Don't focus on the outward appearance. Don't get stuck in the glory days of the past. Be strong. This is a transition point in the passage. Yet now, he's transitioning. It's not explicit in the text, but perhaps there was some discouragement uh, building in the hearts and minds of the people. This temple is not like the last one. Maybe our best days are behind us. What can the future have in store? Will the Lord even dwell in a lesser temple? The Lord, knowing our hearts, calls for us to be strong. Be strong. But not only to be strong, he says to work. He says work. Be faithful and diligent regarding the building of the Lord's house. Be faithful and diligent church regarding the building of the kingdom of God. We saw it last time. We see it again here too. Namely the idea of work or obedience. The fact that God saved Israel from bondage in Egypt and the fact that God brought the remnant back to the land doesn't mean that the people have no responsibility. Similarly, for us, God saved us by grace, through faith, in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it is Christ himself who said, I will build my church and the, kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yet even though God is building his church, even though Christ is building his church, he works through means. 
He works through us to build his church, to accomplish his sovereign plans and purposes. We are that means, right? We are the the ones through whom the kingdom of God is being built. Again, like Paul says, I watered, Apollos uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but what is it? God provides the growth. But in that is implied that there is some work to be done on our parts. So be strong and work. Now, why should we be strong? Why should we work? For the Lord declares at the end of verse 4, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, those same little words that we saw at the end of chapter 1, I am with you. If you circled or underlined those words in chapter 1, do so again in chapter 2. These are gospel words. Here again is gospel comfort. Now consider the situation. The people were lamenting that the new temple they were rebuilding will not compare to the former glory of Solomon's temple. In fact, when Solomon completed his work on the temple in 1 Kings 8, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the Holy of Holies, And it says in 1 Kings 8.11 that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The people received a visible manifestation that the Lord was indeed with them. But after centuries of sin, idolatry, apostasy, we see in the prophet Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord had left the temple, that the glory of the Lord had departed from amongst his people. And then Solomon's temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And they wonder now, will the glory of the Lord ever return to our temple? And then you get these four words of gospel comfort. The Lord says, I am with you. I am with you. Even though the temple that was being rebuilt was nothing like the former glory of the first temple, this is no impediment for the Lord of hosts. Think about it. The glory of the Lord dwelt in a traveling tent for 400 years before a temple was ever built. In other words, it's not the splendor of the temple that defines its glory. That's what the people need to understand. Don't think that the Lord is going to be any less with you because your temple does not look like the last one. It is the grace of God, which is evident in that he dwells in the midst of his people. And because it is God's presence that makes the temple glorious, it's not the other way around. It is God's presence which brings glory to the temple. Now, this is good news for all of us, right? It's not too hard to imagine that many of us labor for the Lord and wonder, will any of this ever come to any fruition? Our prayers for our lost family, friends, and loved ones our weak efforts at evangelism, our teaching, our preaching, our shepherding. Do we, we wonder, all this labor I'm putting forth, is this ever going to amount to anything? Haggai's message is for us too. Work, for I am with you. Two great passages, one from the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says at the end of that great chapter, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So work, church, work 
Your labor is not in vain. It's what Jesus, our Lord, promised in the Great Commission, right? Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So work because Christ is with us. And of course, the Lord is using this title for himself. We talked about it last time, the Lord of hosts. It's a military term to refresh your memory. It depicts God as the commander of a vast angelic army. And it connotes the idea of conquest, of success. With the Lord of hosts on your side, victory is assured. It doesn't matter that the Persians were in control. The Lord of hosts is the one who is really in control. And this will come into play a little bit later. The Lord is with his people because in verse 5, he is a covenant-keeping God. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The Lord keeps his promises. He is a promise keeper. He keeps his promise that he made way back in Exodus when he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. God has betrothed himself to one nation, one people, Israel, one bride, one people. And then for God to forsake his bride, for God to forsake his people, would be for God to cease being God. Again, comforting words to a people who have time and time again broken the covenant and proved themselves to be unfaithful. Yet again, because of their faith in the Lord and his promises, the spirit of the Lord remains in their midst. So listen up. The very thing that the temple symbolized was being done despite an unfinished, less glorious temple. The temple wasn't finished. It was less glorious. Yet the Lord says, I am with you. I am in your midst. You can take comfort with these words too, beloved. Because last time we talked about how the church is the temple of the Lord. How individual believers are living stones being built up into a temple of the Lord. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He is in our midst even now. And even though we grieve the Lord with our sin and disobedience, the Holy Spirit is a promise. He is an earnest of a better promise to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans. God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, preserves us firm to the end. And that is why we can, as Haggai says here, fear not. Fear not. Now, as we come to verses 6 through 9, we're going to see now the expectation of the latter glory. It is interesting that the Lord, through Haggai, ends verse 5 with the command, fear not. So after encouraging the, the leaders and the people to be strong, after exhorting the leaders and the people to work, for I will be with you, the Lord then comforts the leaders and the people with the words, fear not. Now, why does he do this? Well, not only does the Lord promise to be with them, but he also promises to do something that will make the people forget the former glory. The Lord of hosts declares, and you're going to see this title again for the Lord. Remember last time we said 38 verses in Haggai. You're going to see this mentioned 14 times. Well, in verses 6 through 9, you're going to see the Lord of hosts mentioned five times. It's a title of sovereignty. We're going to see sovereignty here 
manifests itself as the Lord shakes the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, basically shaking all of creation. Now, you need to put your thinking caps on here because when we talk about shaking of creation, when we talk about the shaking of the created orders in Scripture, this is usually associated with great cosmic changes or with the coming of the day of the Lord, that day of judgment. We're told that the mountains will shake, the earth will shake. In fact, when God made his covenant with the people at Sinai, it was said that the whole mountain shook because the presence of the Lord was there. Psalm 68 talks about how this trembling of the created order reverberated all throughout the centuries. Now, when you think of a mountain, what do you think of? You think of something that's solid, right? Something that is immovable, unshakable, something that is permanent. They are a picture of stability in the scriptures. So when mountains shake at the presence of the Lord, that means something cataclysmic is about to happen. And here, Haggai tells us what the purpose of this shaking is. He says in verse 7 that God will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come. They shall come into the house of the Lord. Now think of it as sort of like, you know, if you're looking for change in something, right? And then you you take your pants and you kind of shake them to see if the coins fall out. You shake your purse or your wallet trying to get all the coins out. It's kind of what God's doing. He's shaking all of creation. Shaking it so that the wealth will come down into the house of the Lord. And then God says, I will fill this house, this temple with my glory. You mean this lame, unfinished house? You mean this very house that the people were lamenting wasn't as good as the previous one? Yes, this very house, this very temple will be filled with the glory of the Lord. He goes on in verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. God is the creator of all things. He owns all things. And it's very fitting that these things, which already belong to the Lord, will be used for the praise and worship of his holy name. So now we'll go back to verse 6, because I want to talk about this idea of judgment. You're going to see here, this is a prophecy. We read Hebrews. Hebrews references Haggai 2.6. And usually when you talk about prophecy, there's often what they call a near fulfillment, something that you see fulfilled in the near time. And then oftentimes you see a sort of a later fulfillment. And then oftentimes you see a sort of a final or complete or consummate fulfillment. And I think that's what you see here in verses six through eight. You see a near fulfillment, a later fulfillment, and then a ultimate or final fulfillment. So do we see the events of chapter uh, verses 6 through 8 being fulfilled in a little while? Because that's what the Lord says, right? Yet in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the dry land, etc. And I think there is a near time fulfillment of this in the life of the people and the prophet. You can read about this in Ezra 6. But in short, what happens is Darius, the king of Persia, orders the work of the temple to be completed and that the money for the temple, the gold and the silver, to complete the work come from the royal revenues themselves. And then in fact, and at the end of chapter 6 of Ezra, you see that the temple is completed four years later and dedicated for service. So here you see sort of the shaking of the mountains and the gold and the silver coming to complete the temple work. Now I see also a later fulfillment in the life of Jesus Christ, a more richer, more full fulfillment of this promise. 
Remember, Jesus himself says that his body is the temple. He said that in John chapter 2. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the, the very living presence of God dwelling in our midst. And at the birth of Jesus, what do you see? Well, you see the Magi bring him gold and incense and, and all these treasures being brought into the temple, as it were, at his birth. And then finally, I believe we see an ultimate consummated fulfillment at the end of the age when Christ returns. The book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of apocalyptic language of shaking, of earthquakes, all of which are associated with the coming of final judgment. And again, that's why we read Hebrews 12, because the author of Hebrews cites this passage, Hebrews 2.6, referring not only to the shaking of the earth, but he says the heavens too. He says all of this speaking about the removal of things that are shaken, the things that are transient, the things that are earthly, the things that are temporary, so that the things that cannot be shaken are, are, will remain, the things that are permanent. Think of like sifting you know, you see these old prospectors in these old movies sifting gold, right? They take the pan and they put it in and they've got all this kind of, you know, grit or whatever and they shake it and all the grit falls out and all that's left is the gold. That's kind of what the idea here in, in, in Hebrews 12 and Haggai 2 is, is that the heavens and the earth will be shaken and what will remain will be permanent. Finally, in Revelation 21, it speaks about the kings of the earth bringing their glory to the heavenly temple, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So therefore, in verse 9, the Lord then declares that the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. So what he's saying is like, don't mourn the, this, this temple's lack of glory compared to the first temple. In fact, he says, and don't miss this, that temple, Solomon's temple, will pale in comparison to the latter glory of the temple yet to come. In other words, what he's telling the people is the best is yet to come. Not the temple that the people were building in Haggai's day, but the temple which is the body of Christ, John 2. It is interesting, as you read the Gospels, you often hear the people in Jesus' time talking about him. And they talk about Jesus in the same way as these people were talking about the temple. In other words, he doesn't look like the Messiah. I mean, what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Everyone complained that he was the friend of sinners and tax collectors. Yet the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were given a glimpse of the true glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount Transfiguration, right? They go up there and it's the veil of Christ's humanity was sort of parted. And the glory of the one and only Son of God, full of glory and, and grace and truth, was allowed to shine through. And Peter, James, and John were witnesses of this. They saw that the latter glory was greater than the former glory. And so momentous was this event that both Peter and John write about it later on. They write about that, that moment seared into their brains. And finally, he says, I will give peace. The Lord declares that in this place, in this glorious latter temple, I will give peace or shalom. One commentator wrote on this passage, he says, peace or shalom involves an all-encompassing state of harmony and fruitfulness. It includes prosperity, but it's far more than prosperity. 
It is nothing less than a total restoration of all relationships, including those between man and God, between man and his fellow man, and between man and the created order. Isn't that beautiful? That's the kind of peace I want. That is the kind of shalom that I want. And all of this comes when the glorious ladder temple, who is the Prince of Peace, the Lamb slain before time, comes at the end of the age. Now, what is our takeaway regarding the latter glory surpassing the former glory? I think it's very easy to look at the church and see a distinct lack of glory. I mean, do we look glorious? I look at myself in the mirror. I don't appear particularly glorious each, particularly when I wake up, I don't appear very glorious. Yet, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it speaks of the covenant of grace under the gospel that it is done with more simplicity and less outward glory. And that's true, right? We proclaim a message about a dying and rising Savior to the world that is foolish. We celebrate using ordinary water, bread, and wine in our celebrations. And to the world, the outside world that looks is weak. Yet in this visible foolishness and weakness is a glory that far outstrips the former glory of the old brick-and-mortar temple. So don't be fooled by outward appearances, but heed the words of Haggai. Be strong and work and don't fear. Beloved, if you're a Christian, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. This passage encourages us not to be nostalgic about the former glory of the glory days of our past, but to look ahead for the glory that is yet to come, the latter glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. Until then, the Lord encourages us in this passage, just as he encouraged the people in Haggai's day, to persevere in the building of the kingdom of God. The building of God's kingdom can seem as nothing in our eyes, and it tempts us to look back on the former glory. But we have to understand this. Redemptive history moves in one direction only. Redemptive history moves in one direction only. It moves from the promise in the past to fulfillment in the future. And this oracle from Haggai reminds us that the glory of God's work is not always visibly manifest at least not initially. Paul wrote of Jesus Christ that he is the radiance of God's glory, yet most perceived it not. And in the hour when Jesus was glorified, when he prayed to, the God, to God the Father in John 17, he said, Reveal, you know, glorify me with the glory that I had before the beginning of the world, yet he appeared anything but glorious. When Christ hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins and God's wrath for our sins, he didn't appear glorious. Yet we who believe in Christ know that's not how the story ends. Death could not contain the glorious Son of God. He was raised from the dead. He was ascended into heaven. And he will one day return in what? Full glory. Finally, as we saw in Hebrews 12, the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai 2.6, this present reality will be shaken and a new heavens and a new earth will come down from heaven and fill the world. The new creation will glory at the revelation of the sons of God 
and we are the sons of God when we are revealed in our glory. Until then, a little while can seem like a long time for us, right? We will go through many trials in this life. We will be tempted to despair and long for the former glory. However, we need to persevere in the hopeful expectation that the best is yet to come. And we persevere that in the knowledge that God is with us. Let's pray.